At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Well, welcome to this uh, drug science podcast. I'm David Nutt and today I've got great pleasure in interviewing an old friend and uh, a man that you've probably all heard of, Dave Nichols. And you've heard of Dave because Dave has been at the forefront of research in all sorts of different drugs uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, many decades, Dave. Why should we, you can tell us how, you can tell us when, and you can tell us why. So why don't you kick off and tell us a bit about how you got into this field and start from the beginning. Well, uh, I wanted to study psychedelics uh, when I was a graduate student. went to graduate school in 1969, but there was no one really doing it. Um, and uh, there was a fellow at the University of Iowa, Joe Cannon, who was the head of the department, who was looking at uh, quinucleidine benzoate. It was an atropine-type compound. Right. When I got to Iowa, that was as close as I could get to a psychedelic. Right. Because there, no one else was studying it, really. But when I got to Iowa and I had a fellowship, um, Joe Cannon had stopped working in that area uh-huh. and offered me a project dealing with apomorphine, uh-huh. which didn't really excite me at all. Uh, you probably know apomorphine makes you vi- violently sick and Indeed. vomiting. It does, yes. And all the literature was in German, which I didn't enjoy reading a lot of German. So there were some other faculty, and even though I had a fellowship and I had communicated with him, he said, well, you can, but you can work for anyone, so interview the other faculty. So as it happened, I interviewed a fellow named Charlie Barfnick, and uh, I had no clue what he was doing. He hadn't published anything, a young assistant professor. And uh, he talked about the projects in his group, and uh, one of them was looking at mescaline metabolites. Uh-huh. Well, there, there aren't any mescaline metabolites. It's mostly excreted unchanged. Uh-huh. But I got, I got really interested because I had absorbed all the knowledge that was out there on the psychedelics. Shogun had published a paper in 1969, uh, Structure-Activity Relationships of One Ring, Psychotomimetics. Mm-hmm. And so I knew all that. So I started talking to him. And he was you know, sort of throwing some facts out, and then I would, I would correct him and say, well, what about this, and didn't Shogun do this, and all that. He pretty quickly realized that I knew quite a bit about the field, and I had a fellowship, which paid my tuition, gave me money for laboratory supplies, and gave him some money. So as it happened, he, he got really excited and said, well, you could work for me. Mm-hmm. So I got into what I was doing, wanted to do, but had not really seen anybody else doing it. And Charlie basically turned me loose in the lab. And I had worked my way through my undergraduate degree uh, by going to school at night, and I was married, and I had a young son, and I'd done that for five and a half years. Get up, go to work, then go to school till 10, 15 at night. I did that that for five and a half years, so I was really burning the candle at both Mm -hmm. ends. So when I got to graduate school, all I had to do was take a couple of chemistry classes and do research. So it was kind of like a vacation. (laughs) And uh, Joe Cannon had thought that uh, this project, you'll be able to finish this off, 
go out and get a job, start making money and supporting your family. And he didn't understand how hard I'd been working in the previous five and a half years. And I wasn't really interested in going back to work and making money again. So uh, that was another aspect of what he offered that kind of turned me off. So in Barfneck's lab, I just pretty much did whatever I wanted. He'd come in and talk to me in the morning about, you know, how the Green Bay Packers had done playing football. And then uh, basically we chat for a few minutes and he'd leave and I just worked like crazy. And it was so much fun because I had been, when I'd been working in industry, I always had two or three projects running simultaneously and I kept separate notebooks and I was rated as one of the most productive technicians where I worked in daytime. And so graduate school was really like a vacation. I was doing all the things I really liked and uh, finished up what we talked about as a master's degree in my first semester. So that's how I got into it. And what's happened since? Well, how did you stay in it? Because it's quite hard to develop a research career in a a field like this, isn't it? it, Yeah, it was. Um, So when I finished my PhD in early 73, um, I moved over to the medical school and did a postdoctoral fellowship in pharmacology Uh with J.P. Long. And so over there, they were testing a lot of the compounds that I had made for my PhD. He had a Chinese postdoc named Shen Chang, and he was using the dog dorsal metatarsal strips. I mean, it's just a smooth muscle assay, looking at the mm-hmm. contractile effect, et cetera. So I went over there and I learned how to do uh, some assays. I, I wrote some programs for their computer and uh, basically just became familiar with pharmacology in general. So when I went to Purdue and interviewed, they were looking for someone that had uh, the ability to bridge both pharmacology and chemistry. So uh, I was a natural choice for him. I had published a lot of papers as a graduate student, I think 15 or 16 papers, been very productive. Um, years later, the head of the department told me that I was the best graduate student they'd ever turned out in that, up to that point. So uh, I guess I impressed some people. Um, so I got to Purdue and uh, I just basically kept doing what I'd been doing. Um, I really didn't know much about the academic world. Um, Barfnick had never really had a grant I worked off university funds and my fellowship and so forth. So I just kept doing the same thing. I had a little startup money. I had a bunch of undergrads that worked in the lab. Just kept doing the same thing, working on mescaline analogs mostly. And then the department chairman, who was a German guy who had visions of growing the department quite a bit, you know, told me one day after a couple of years, you need to get a grant and get some hands in the lab mm-hmm. uh, working on your ideas and so then I learned how to write a grant. Fortunately, it got funded uh, on my first grant, sent it to NIDA. And uh, that grant I was able to keep funded for 28 or 29 years. Can you remember what it was about? What was, the, what was the theme? Well, when I started, my question in the beginning was, uh, what does a receptor look like that accommodates both LSD and a phenethylamine like mescaline? Right. right. And so it was, it was focused on making uh, derivatives of mescaline that would sort of look like ergolines, tying the side chains around and making rigid analogs with the idea that I was going to figure out how phenethylamines could bind to the same receptor that LSD bound to. These days, we have to have a, if we're going to get a grant, there's got to be an impact. How would you be persuading people to fund you to do psychedelic research? Well, um, this is 1974. There was a lot of interest, a lot of recreational yeah. uh, use, uh, the, the war on drugs. And basically, NIDA wanted somebody to do structure activity studies and just map out the lay of the land. So I probably had some specific hypotheses, but they would be more related to, well, we hypothesize if we make this molecule, it might be active. And it, because it, and then I draw parallels to the structure of LSD or tryptamines. So it was 
uh, not as hypothesis-driven in those days. And then, of course, as time went on, my hypotheses became more focused. But they were all generally trying to study the structure activity features. What was it about the molecule that made it active? What parts of the molecule did you need for activity? Was that the chemical series from which you started making the embomes? No, no, no. That was uh, the embomes were much later on, uh-huh. near the almost near the end of my right. time when um, there was a technician that had worked in uh, Rolf Heim's lab, and he had sent me a copy of uh, a poster that Rolf had given at a meeting and was talking about these things being effective. And I think Rolf had used a rabbit ear, a rabbit ear artery assay, something like that. And we had drug discrimination and a bunch of more relevant assays, mm-hmm. and the compounds were so trivial to make that we just made a bunch of them and said, you know, why are these things so active? Because mm. we didn't think we didn't think they should be. Because if you take you know mescaline and put a simple methyl group on it, it kills its activity. Mm. So how could you take a molecule like that and put a large in benzyl, which is quite yeah. large, yes. and it retained its activity? So that was the question. And we looked at whether they were active in our rat model, which were rats that were trained to recognize the effects of LSD. So they were quite potent in the rat model. And so we published that. We did some mutagenesis work. We modified the amino acids in the receptor mm-hmm. to try to figure out what the N-benzyl was doing. And it came up with the hypothesis based on a very crude model we had that it was a, a particular phenylalanine residue that was in helix of six. And so we published that along with the mutagenesis studies and some drug discrimination studies. And that's the paper that everybody keyed in on mm-hmm. rather than the original German work that Heim had done. Yes, it is kind of weird, isn't it? You look at psilocybin, which is a kind of tiny little molecule, looks just a bit like 5-HT. And you look at LSD, which is a massive molecule, I mean, three or four times as big. And then you say the M-bombs have also got these weird side chains. There's like serotonin with lots of big side chains. I mean, how would you explain to the, to the, the non-scientist or the non-chemist anyway, uh, how they how how they work? I mean, is that, is that, why, why would they, there was so much flexibility in the binding site, so to speak? Well, the binding site is flexible. It's a G-protein-coupled receptor, GPCR. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that they are pretty flexible. They're always kind of fluctuating and moving in, when they're in the membrane. They're not static and fixed. Mm-hmm. And so they can accommodate lots of things. So serotonin is the natural mm-hmm. transmitter that fits in there. And, of course, it's a very small molecule, so the receptor adapts itself to that. And then you put a large molecule like LSD in it, really wedges in. It's like throwing a, a wrench in the cogs. Uh-huh. kind of locks it into a specific shape. And we know from the crystal structure that was published out of the lab I'm working in 2017 that when LSD gets in, there's actually a piece of the receptor that folds over the LSD and wedges it in there, which is probably responsible for its long action mm-hmm. and its high potency. Um, the phenethylamine, so far as we know, we don't have any evidence that that happens with any of those. But the receptor really is pretty flexible and can accommodate a pretty large variety of molecules. Mm-hmm. But you also started getting interested in MDMA. I think you became one of the sources of uh, research MDMA. Yeah. And many, many. Was that because of serotonin or was that because of shulgin or a bit of both? Um, really more Sasha than anything else. Um, he had told me about MDMA early on and had sent a sample before it was made illegal. And that was an interesting molecule, but it wasn't a psychedelic. No. And uh, so I, uh, when, when the campaign started to make it illegal... I thought, well, this will never be a drug, but I had met a lot of psychiatrists who had been using it in their uh, private practice uh-huh. and really raved about, you know, I had this person in therapy for 10 years and never made any progress, and 
I had a session with MDMA and all of a sudden all of this stuff about childhood abuse started spilling out and it was really incredible. This is an amazing drug that ought to be available for psychiatry. But it was my opinion that MDMA could never be commercialized because of its genesis in sort of the black market. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll start making analogs to see if we can find out something that has similar pharmacology, but which is completely new and novel and doesn't have its genesis in that black market. And maybe it would be something that could be commercialized. Right. I see. And so in the process, we studied a lot about what MDMA actually did, what were the elements that caused its neurotoxicity, what structural features could we modify, and really ended up finding out that serotonin was the principal neurotransmitter that was involved and made some very specific compounds that released serotonin, um, were less toxic. I have no idea what the clinical effects would be, but uh, looked very similar to MDMA and sort of the RAT model but we're fairly selective serotonin releasers, whereas MDMA releases serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine is a pretty messy drug. And that was the point at which I named this class of drugs intactogens mm, mm. because the, the DEA was calling them just substituted amphetamine hallucinogens. Mm, mm. And I said, well, they're not hallucinogens. They don't have the same mechanism. They don't act in the same way. They don't have this postsynaptic effect. They're more like, you know, psychostimulants, like methamphetamine. And we published some papers where we pretty much pinned it down that the stereochemistry was reversed from hallucinogens. Uh, the alpha ethyl group was inactive in hallucinogens. And the N-methylation killed the activity of hallucinogens. And yet you saw that carried over in the intactogens. So it was a di clearly a different class of molecule, and I wanted to distinguish it. And I didn't like empathogen, which is a name that Ralph Messner had proposed, because empathogen didn't sound scientific, and the pathogen part of it kind of stuck out and yeah. kind, of, kind of unsavory. Yeah. And so we created this word. I tried to think for a long time, what would be a word that would describe what they do? And intactogen, which had the connotation of a drug that could reach within, mm -hmm. sort of, which, which is what I thought MDMA did, allowed people to get access to unconscious material or repressed material. I mean, some people believe in that uh, there was a deliberate ploy by the DEA to misrepresent MDMA as being both a stimulant and a psychedelic, so they could enhance the penalties, because in some states, the penalties for MDMA possession were a summation of the penalties for an equivalent dose of cocaine and an equivalent dose of psychedelics. And I wonder if that was a sort of cynical reason to try to deter people from using MDMA. Yeah, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people refer to MDMA as a molecule that has both stimulant and hallucinogenic properties, which I really, I don't like that terminology at all. But I actually testified there was a, there was a sentencing commission that met because the penalties for MDMA were as severe as for cocaine. Yes. And I actually testified along with some other people there that this was not true, that MDMA was not as dangerous as cocaine, it wasn't uh, addictive, it didn't produce dependence, mm. and that they needed to reduce the penalties. Mm. So I don't know, the DEA, of course, uh, basically is a police organization, and mm. their mission is to keep people from using mm. drugs, and so anything that makes people wary, you know, LSD damages your chromosomes, or MDMA damages your brain, all these kinds of things are typical things that they use to try to discourage recreational use. But you've been there for the whole of that period when these drugs were illegal. Uh, you said you started working in '69 as a as a, a graduate. Do you, do you, I mean, do you sense that people have ever really listened, or are there ears just blocked to, to the science? Um, I think certainly the younger generation is listening more. I think the old folks that, that run the country, uh, by and large, are 
I'm kind of resistant to logic, so to speak. And then you've got all these echoes from the 60s of, you know, how dangerous they were and the hippies using them. And, you know, so there's a, a pervasive notion among many of the public that these things are just still dangerous drugs. But I think um, there's more of a recognition now that they have beneficial properties. And you know, this is one of the reasons we push this term psychedelic. When when I set up the Hefter Institute, mm-hmm. we had to say, was our, what was our mission going to be? And uh, we were told, oh, we're going to study hallucinogens. And uh, I said, no, I, I don't want to do that. They're not hallucinogens. They don't produce hallucinations. Um, they, do, they do something else. And this mind-manifesting idea mm. that they're psychedelics makes a lot more sense. And people said, no, no, don't talk about studying psychedelics because they'll just think you're a bunch of tie-dyed uh, hippies. But we said, no, no, we're going to talk call them psychedelics. And that seems to be now, whereas before it was kind of a counterculture term, mm. you see that term used quite a bit just in the, the late press and the media. Whereas, of course, in the D, at the DEA and in the scientific organizations, they still call them hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Grove is writing a book called, and it's titled Medical, uh, Medical Hallucinogens. And I said, Charlie, don't call them hallucinogens. We've been working to, to use this term psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And he claimed he talked to the publisher about using that, and they had poo-pooed it. And I was kind of disappointed. But I really want to see that term displace hallucinogen completely for these kinds of uh, drugs. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Well, yes, because there are many other drugs which cause hallucinations. I think you go back to your original work with atropine analogs, they can cause bizarre hallucinations. And drugs like salvia can cause, and yet they're very different. They're not serotonergic at all. Exactly. And so you set up the hefters. Tell tell people, A, why it's called hefter, because most people won't know. And B, why you set it up and, uh, and what's its ambition? So I was doing psychedelics all those years and I would go to scientific meetings and meet people from my generation that had taken LSD or mescaline or whatever. And uh, we would sit and talk about, you know, it's really a shame nobody's doing clinical studies. You know, I was doing mouse and rat and cat studies and so forth, but that doesn't really tell you what they do. There's no spiritual component. And so... Uh, uh, we'd talk about that over a beer, and I'd say, you know, it's really a shame. And they'd say, oh, nobody, no one will let you study these. The government thinks they're too dangerous. Um, I had people tell me, you know, the government doesn't want people to take them because they'll, they'll take them and they'll become anti-war and they'll become anti-government and so forth. And, but I just didn't believe that. And uh, Ann Shogun, in fact, once told me the government will never let you study these drugs. And I just didn't believe that. And I'd talk to people and I'd say, well, you know, the problem is you won't get government funding. You can do it if you're qualified, but you won't get government funding. And I told that story over and over and over. And I said, you know, somebody should set up a private institute. And in the beginning, when I first started telling the story, I'd say, you know, you just need an endowment of maybe a million dollars. Well, it went on and on and on. And just before I set up the Hefter, I said, well, you'd need an endowment of maybe $10 million. And uh, even that, you know, wouldn't have been, well, it have been more than, but and so um, I just, and I didn't do it because I was a PhD. I didn't have an MD. 
And I really thought, you know, to do the clinical work, you need to have some MDs on board and somebody who, who knew more about the clinical science of it. So at a certain point, I went home from one of those meetings and I was sitting and I remember thinking to myself, you know, you've been telling this story about a private institute for years and years. And uh, you're going to be 80 years old sitting in your rocking chair and still telling people somebody should do this. <laughs> and so I basically just grabbed the bull by the horns and called some people who I knew were sympathetic, MDs and PhDs, said, let's start a not-for-profit research institute and let's hit up the uh, philanthropists to get money to fund these studies. That turned out to be much more difficult than, than I thought. But anyway, then we had a debate about the name of the institute. In the beginning, it was going to be called the Walter Panky Institute. But then Rick Strassman, who was supposed to be one of the original founders, said, no, that's a bad idea. People say there's hanky-panky at the panky. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, geez, well, what should we do? He said it should be called something real nebulous, like the Triangle Institute or something like that. And I didn't like that at all. So I started reading, and I had uh, Bo Homestead had written a book about sort of pioneer pharmacologists, and he had a section on Arthur Hefter, who I didn't know much about. Arthur Hefter is vastly underappreciated. The guy was, he was a genius. He had an MD, he had a PhD in pharmacology, a PhD in chemistry. He was a top public health official in the German Empire at the time he lived. He invented, discovered the hair test for arsenic. No. Um, they used to have lead, lead caps in their beer bottles. And he said, you've got to take those out. People are getting lead poisoning. He was really the guy that anybody went to with any public health mm -hmm. issue. Um, he was a lover of music. His PhD thesis was uh, dedicated to one of the classic musicians. He, by all reports, was loved by all of his students. They had a retrospective on the anniversary of his death in the 50s. He died, I think, in 1925. But uh, one of his students said, we'll never know how much he actually did, because a lot of times he would give an idea to one of his students. They would do the work, get ready to write up and come in, and want to put his name on as a co-author. And he would say, no, 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 you did the work. And he'd say, but it was your idea. No, no, you did all the work. And for a German scientist, you know the way the German yeah, system yeah, works. Yeah. The guy who's the head of the lab has his name on everything, whether or not he had any input. So he was, he was really a, a beloved guy. And he was the guy who had first identified mescaline as the active component of the peyote cactus through self-experiments. Uh -huh. So he isolated all the individual alkaloids, took each one, and found that mescaline was the active compound and published that. And uh, at the time he published it, it was said to be one of the most impressive papers published in the pharmacology of that era. So I thought, this is a perfect guy to name, and we just named it Hepgency. Well, Rick Strassman didn't like that. He thought it was going to indicate that we were all a bunch taking a bunch of drugs. And I said, no, that's not what Hefter did. And uh, we had a debate back and forth. And I said, no, I'm not, I like this guy. He's the perfect guy to represent the Hefter Institute. And uh, we stuck with that. And then Rick, Rick, of course, got upset and, and dropped off, and, and, and we replaced him. But that was sort of the genesis. And of it's it. been going how long now? Uh, Twenty, I think, almost twenty-six years. Ninety-three. Well, to almost twenty-seven years. Yeah. And you, you, I mean, we're grateful you you gave us some pump priming funding when we wanted to kickstart our first psilocybin study. So thank you for that. And yeah, we basically have tried to sort of uh, restart the field. And I think the Hefter Institute doesn't get enough credit for the work we did. The people who are in the know realize that we really have. And we're the ones really that push psilocybin. We had a discussion about what drug to use in these, in these clinical studies. And we thought, well, in the beginning, Charlie Grobe was going to use MDMA. And the first study was going to be in, in terminal cancer patients. Mm -hmm. But Charlie was very uncomfortable giving MDMA to people who were severely sick. Oh. 
he thought, you know, it's a stimulant. It's going to stimulate their cardiovascular system, and I just don't want to do that. Well, what should we use? And we talked about, well, LSD, but, you know, LSD is a long-acting drug, and it would create. we thought it would create a media feeding frenzy, that all of a sudden newspapers would be saying this group of people were giving LSD to dying people, and it just wouldn't sound very good. Plus, it was long-acting. You'd have to put people in the clinic and keep them overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then we talked about mescaline, which had a long history, but it also is a 10-hour, 11-hour acting drug. And a lot of people get nauseous and vomit when they take mescaline or peyote. So we thought, you know, we don't want to take sick people and give them something that makes them sicker. So then the next thing was, well, what about um, psilocybin? And we knew it had been used for millennia. And people in the U.S. were eating mushrooms and it had a history of safety. So we thought, well, it sounds pretty safe. People have used it. It had been used before. So we decided to really push that. And I had done some work kind of improving the synthesis of psilocybin. I'd been trying to make it for Rick uh, Strassman. He wanted to go from DMT to psilocybin. And there was a tricky step there that used a reagent that was would spontaneously detonate. It's what Albert Hoffman... <laughs> a bomb. It's what, yeah. It's what Albert Hoffman had used and Sandoz had used in the beginning. So dibenzylphosphorochloride is what it's called. But I read and it's, uh, it can spontaneously detonate when it's without any solvent. And so my technician, Stuart, said, you know, I'm just not comfortable using that. And it would be really difficult to get it. It came as a benzene solution. And so we, we searched around and found a tetrabenzylpyrophosphate, which is what most people have used uh, for the synthesis. So we kind of improved that. And then a Japanese group improved it better. And then the group at USONA, uh, Alex Sherwood, they, they refined it a little bit further. But, you know, the fact that psilocybin is being used was kind of a decision that we consciously made in the beginning. And it's kind of, it's really uh, gratifying to see that that's really taken off because I think it really is one of the ideal drugs in terms of its overall intensity and the short duration of action. Absolutely. And we didn't know in the beginning whether it would actually work in treating people like LSD. It worked, you know, in the cancer patients. And so that first study with Charlie, when he used it, it did work. And so that was really gratifying because maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe there was something special about LSD. We just didn't know. So uh, we tried to find an an indication where we get a lot of bang for the buck. What would we do with our first study? And the things that had been done most successfully were the treatment of uh, cancer patients with LSD. So that's kind of how everything got started. Well, yeah, and uh, and you're still functioning as well as ever, are you? Is it, are you still getting your donations? or? Yeah, we still have some studies. We've got a study of OCD at Yale, a study of AIDS survivors, uh, devastation there. Uh, we've moved over to try to help raise money for a psychedelic research center uh, at other universities, like Johns Hopkins got a commitment of $17 million. So we're working now to try to fund other centers, to find the donors to fund some other centers to do that research. It's not so controversial anymore. You imagine Johns Hopkins as a whole center to do psychedelic research. So Yale and UCSF and some other places now are going, oh, yeah, maybe we should get in on the action. That's right. You can't be left behind, can you? <laughs> no. So, but you've, so you've been fighting or at least having to accommodate the DEA all, all your professional career. I mean, has that been a big challenge, getting licenses to, to make these things and store them and use them? It's not. It certainly wasn't in the beginning. And I, my Schedule One license, I had 15 different substances on it. You may know that you can't just have a broad license. Like for Schedule, yeah, for Schedule Two or Three, general narcotics, etc., psychostimulants, you just get a license for Schedule Two, Three, or Four, and it covers anything you want. But the psychedelics are in Schedule One, and for Schedule One, you have to have a specific drug identifier for each drug you want to use. So I had 15. That covered, you know, all the phenethylamines 
and some tryptamines, and we made LSD for our rats. Um, I never really had any trouble, but they've changed. In the beginning, you just had to request it and tell how much you needed and you know what you were going to do with it. Now the regulations have gotten a lot tougher. After you write up a protocol, they send it to somebody at FDA who says whether the work is should be done or not, which they never used to ask that. If you were a scientist, you could say, I want to study it, and you could request a sample and get it. Now they want to be sure that you've got a reason to do it, and they read your protocol, and uh, you have to have a facility that you can't break into. New York University, they told me when they started using psilocybin, the local DEA, you say have state DEAs as well as the Oh, you have a double DEA. whammy. Oh, how nice. So the state DA agents came in, and uh, they had an 800-pound safe that they had bolted down to the floor. But they said no. They had one gram of psilocybin, I think. <laughs> and they said the DEA insisted that they had to take it out every day, weigh it, have my witness weighing it every day to make sure that none had been taken out of there. And that's just you know kind of how ridiculous the regulations were. I mean, if you want to study mescaline, you know the dose of mescaline is two or three hundred yeah. milligrams. If you, if you wanted to get 10 or 15 milligrams to do a rat study, you would still have to have the appropriate safe to store it in and all the safeguards and everything. So they get a little carried away. Totally. Well, I'm glad that you've had the willpower and the resolution to fight your way through it. I mean, it, it's been very deleterious to research. And we've been arguing for some time in the UK that there should be a, what we call a de minimis amount that people can just use. And it could be different for each drug. But if it's a sub active dose for humans then why shouldn't chemists be allowed to work with it yeah exactly it's like the example of mescaline i just gave you know it would take two or three hundred milligrams for a human dose and you want to get 10 or 15 milligrams it should be something you could just buy and also the price of it is so huge and it's not it's not as if anyone's going to be buying it for recreational use <laughs> no it's a uh, pretty expensive yeah they charge you for the paperwork just to handle it yeah, absolutely yeah. So one of the things that you, you, you and I have actually talked about before and I got you to write a paper on was this um, was DMT. Ever since Strassman, you know, the spirit molecule, everyone has assumed that DMT has got something to do with the soul and the brain. And I remember hearing you speak at um, Breaking Convention a few years back about the, the DMT and end-of-life experience. And you did such a great critique of that that I got you to publish a, a paper in, in JSAC Farm. Do you want to tell people about that? Because I think it's a very good example of how of how you can apply analytical science and pharmacology to, to an interesting but probably wrong theory. Well, I got invited to give a presentation on DMT as a neurotransmitter. And the invitation, I said, well, I'm the wrong guy because I don't believe DMT is a neurotransmitter. He said, well, that's precisely what we want you to come because it's going to be kind of a debate thing. I was the only one on that side of the debate, mm-hmm. as it turned out. And so it was a mixture. There were a bunch of people that were very unhappy with what I said, but there were other people that came up and said, wow, that was beautiful. You know, you need to write that up. It's great, etc." The problem is, with respect to a generation of DMT from the pineal gland, one of the key problems is pineal gland weighs about 180 milligrams on average. And Strassman had done a study, you know, he'd given DMT intravenously. He and Andrew Gallimore had published a paper where they said, you know, if you did an intravenous continuous drip, you could put people into that DMT state and maybe they could communicate with these yep. aliens yep. that are out there when the DMT. DMT. Yep. So they had said, you know, you need a, based on the, and Strassman, when he had done his original studies, had looked at plasma concentrations of DMT. So they had decided in order to get people to that state, you'd have to give them 25 milligrams. So I said, well, the principal function of the pineal gland is producing melatonin. And it makes about 25 micrograms 
in 24 hours. And that's what it's supposed to do. I said, now you want it to make 25 milligrams, a thousand times more. It's just not going to happen. So I got a lot of pushback. And then people said, well, you know, and the enzyme that methylates it, endolamine and methyltransferase, INMT, occurs throughout the body and the lungs. And people said, well, what's it there for? What's it there for? Well, you know, the first study of INMT was done by Julius Axelrod, and he took some rabbit lungs, made it homogenate, and threw in tritium-labeled radioactive S-adenosylmethionine to see what came out. And what came out was N-methyl serotonin. Didn't get DMT out. And actually, I've had some discussions recently with some pharmacologists. I said, what does N-methyl serotonin do? Because if you've got INMT, if that's the preferred substrate, yeah, suppose you have a serotonin syndrome, maybe that's an enzyme that somehow deactivates it. Does it have less of a vasoconstrictor effect? And, no, and there's no literature on N-methyl serotonin. But anyway, I said, you know, it doesn't make sense. There's no evidence, you know, to the amount you have to smoke to get an effect. The, the pino can't produce that. And then there's been another paper that they've done. They've said, well, the, the messenger RNA for INMT is in the brain and pineal gland. And so it, that must mean it's producing DMT and all. But there's, it's just a it's scientific pseudoscience speculation. So basically, I, I don't think that's what's going on when you have an out-of-body experience. You, you don't need to invoke the formation of endogenous DMT. But there's another area that I think is really important, and there was a webinar on psychedelics a couple of weeks ago. I think you might have been talking on it. I, I was talking on it. And the question was being raised, and you've helped me with this a lot. It was about the 5-HT2B receptor risk with all current drugs, because as we know, the psilocybin, LSD, um, in DMT, they have some impact on this 5-HC2B receptor. And, and there's been, you know, people are using the 2B receptor as a sort of scare among, you know, people say, oh, well, we, these drugs could be dangerous. Could you just explain to, to, to people you know, what that theory is and, and how you kind of dismissed it in terms of the dosing, the traditional dosing of psilocybin, intermittent dosing. It, it's very unlikely, I believe, to psilocybin to have any relevance to the 2B receptor. But could you just share what your thoughts on that, please? So um, there was a drug combination called FenFen, fenfluramine and fentramine that was available for weight control years ago. And it basically raised levels of serotonin in the body and what they found is that people that were taking FinFin were developing uh, cardiac problems, uh, cardiac myopathy, and the valves were becoming fibrotic. So a 5-HT2B receptor stimulates growth of connective tissue. And so for people that were taking FinFin on a daily basis, this was causing cardiac problems. So they tracked it down to the activation of the 5-HT2B receptor. And then there were a couple ergot derivatives that were used to treat Parkinson's disease. A pergolide was one, a Permax, and they also activate the 5-HT2B receptor. So they went back and looked at some of these Parkinson patients who had been on these ergoline anti-Parkinson drugs chronically and found that a percentage of them also had these cardiac myopathies, cardiac fibrotic valve thickening. And that again was traced back to the activation of the 2B receptor. So all those drugs have been taken off the market because of that. So psilocybin or psilocin and LSD, they activate the 2B receptor. But in the cases of the cardiac valvulopathies, it was really a situation where people were taking these every day chronically. And so I've argued that, you know, if you take it once or twice a year or whatever, you know, every few months, you don't have the constant stimulation there. My concern really was with people who were microdosing these drugs. 
and whether or not they could produce an effect. I think LSD microdosing is possible. It could, because we know that LSD gets trapped in this 2A and the 2B receptor by this piece of the receptor that folds over. So even low doses of LSD could have a pronounced effect. And if people used it once or twice a month, even at high doses, I don't think it'd be a problem. But I was concerned because I was reading accounts on the internet of people who are microdosing every day. And I thought, you know, this is a this is an experiment that I'm not sure people want to try because it may well be that, that they would have a problem. And, you know, one solution for this valvulopathy is a heart transplant. So I'm not <laughs> sure... I'm not sure solution. That, yeah, I'm not sure that people who wanted to microdose with LSD on a continuous basis would be no. well attracted to a heart transplant. But I suppose in theory you could make, and maybe you yourself have made drugs which are more 2A selective than 2B, and so you can get rid of the 2B risk. Could you? We haven't seen, you know, when, once we start looking at that, we haven't really seen that so much. Um, it's quite possible you could design drugs. But the 2A and the 2B receptors are so similar in terms of their amino acid sequence. I think it would be it would be a tricky thing. You'd have to really do some virtual docking on huge, you know, multi-million libraries and dock them into the 2A versus the 2B. And maybe you'd find something there that you wouldn't be able to predict. But I think it's a difficult problem. Of course, the fact that they're so similar is why people... Because I believe the crystal crystallization was the 2B and we're making inferences about the 2A from the 2B. Is that right? Yeah, but I, I have seen the crystal structure of the 2A, which will probably be published later this okay. year, and it's basically the same argument. And it also has that same flap that locks it in there. Yeah, so well, let me just I – mean, so that, the flap explains some, you know, the very long duration of action of LSD. Now, one of the questions that always intrigued me was that people say you don't get tolerance to DMT. You get obviously you get acute tolerance to LSD, possibly because it sits there – do you think that's true? The EMT tolerance doesn't exist, or is it just because it's around too short a time that you know, the adaptive changes don't occur? Yeah, I think that's one possible explanation is, I mean, LSD gets trapped in the receptor and stays for hours and hours and hours. Um, DMT, as far as we know, doesn't. But there's another thing called uh, ligand bias. And uh, to be uh, internalized and develop tolerance, you need to recruit this uh, transmitter molecule called arrestin. And LSD does that quite effectively. So no one has really looked so far, although I expect we'll see those papers in another year or two. No one has looked in detail at what DMT does. It's possible that DMT does not lead to the recruitment of arrestin. That would make it different. So it could be the short, the short occupancy of the receptor, but it also could be that when it's in there, it's not recruiting arrestin. And one of the other things I've, uh, people have asked me to ask you is about, do you have a a view on natural versus synthetics? Well, the chemists are natural and they make the drugs. And if they're the same as the drugs that are in the plant, there's no difference. Um, you know, people have asked me, is synthetic psilocybin the same as the stuff you get out of mushrooms? And I think it's the same. It's, it's identical. It has the same mass spectrum and the same NMR and mass spec and all. So I don't think there's any difference. But do you think, I mean, I might, what's your take on the sort of entourage concept? Do you think there might be other stuff in mushrooms like there's other stuff in cannabis that could potentially add to the value of something like psilocybin? Um, with respect to the mushrooms, there are things like bayocystin and norbayocystin, which, which are like psilocybin, but they only have one methyl or no methyl groups. Now, this past year, Alex Sherwood, uh, working up at USONA, has made bayocystin and norbayocystin and in the studies they've looked at, it doesn't seem like it, it doesn't produce the mouse head twitch, for example. And, and they may be degraded more quickly. 
but it's possible then in the context of a mixture with psilocybin being there, maybe it uh, some inhibits MAO a little bit. So maybe these could add something to it. I used to think that baocystin maybe really made one class of mushrooms more effective than others, which there are some that I think um, Mexican, I think, may produce more baocystin uh -huh. than cubensis, for example. And people say, well, these mushrooms were more visual. So I, I, I thought there might be something to that. But at this point, I'm really kind of antagonistic toward that idea that I don't know that they really do anything unless there's a component in there like an MAO inhibitor and mm -hmm. a low concentration that nobody has identified because they've been looking for tryptamines yes. and there might be some natural MAO inhibitor that no one has pulled out of there. And I think an MAO inhibitor with psilocybin would, would have a profound effect because I know people that have taken small doses of ayahuasca and then taken psilocybin, it really intensifies the effect of psilocybin. So the beta carbolines in the ayahuasca probably are having an effect there. So it could be that maybe you have a low concentration of MAO inhibitor in a mushroom that nobody has actually pulled out. So it could be the case. But I think there's just a natural variability in mushrooms, where they're grown and what you know what species they are. And so David, you've been uh, very much in the sort of cutting edge of the two great developments: MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin or psychedelics, which depression seems to be the primary target there. And you must be quite satisfied that you've uh, you've helped push both those fields along. And uh, Which one do you think is going to get to the market first? Um, I think MDMA probably is going to be approved first. It's it's in phase three, and I think all the psilocybin studies by Compass and also USONA, they're phase 2B. So I think they'll be a, a year or two behind. And, of course, the coronavirus is slowing everything down as far as the clinical studies. But I'll be happy uh, if any of them get in. A woman asked me years ago, well, what do you see as the future of this field? And I remember telling her, and I've told this story before, I said, well, someday, probably long after I'm dead, these drugs will be available and someone will be having a midlife crisis and they'll talk to their primary care physician and he'll send them down to the corner to see the psychiatrist slash shaman who uses these and you'll do a psychedelic session and you'll get a perspective on your life and get a new outlook, etc." And she said, oh my God, you think you'll be dead by then? And I said, well, probably, but as long as the vector is going in the right direction, that's okay. <laughs> so uh, we're a lot farther along than I thought we'd be. This is, it's really amazing. Well, David, that is in no small part down to your efforts and not just in terms of making uh, the drugs and bringing rationality to the debate, but also being you know, so communicative and being prepared to travel around the world putting right people's mis misperceptions and, and prejudices. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for joining me on this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to do it. I think I feel like it's an obligation to help to educate people that this is, the, this is a breakthrough in psychiatry. It's going to change the way we look at and treat mental illness. And it's been something I've been very dedicated it's to. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, make sure you live long enough to see at least one of them there. Right. <laughs> Well, I don't have to live too much longer, so I hope I'll make it. My wife says I have to live to be 95, so that gives me 20 years. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, stay free of the virus, and thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye.